Section eight of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. New York, Tuesday, February sixth, nineteen o six. Playing the Prince and the Pauper, acting charades, etc. When Susie was twelve and a half years old, I took to the platform again, after a long absence from it, and raked the country for four months in company with George W. Cable. Early in November we gave a reading one night in Chickering Hall in New York, and when I was walking home in a dull gloom of fog and rain, I heard one invisible man say to another invisible man this, in substance, General Grant has actually concluded to write his autobiography. That remark gave me joy at the time, but if I had been struck by lightning in place of it, it would have been better for me and mine. However, that is a long story, and this is not the place for it. To Susie, as to all Americans, General Grant was the supremest of heroes, and she longed for a sight of him. I took her to see him one day. However, let that go. It belongs elsewhere. I will return to it by and by. In the midst of our reading campaign, I returned to Hartford from the far west, reaching home one evening just at dinner-time. I was expecting to have a happy and restful season by a hickory fire in the library with the family, but was required to go at once to George Warner's house, a hundred and fifty yards away across the grounds. This was a heavy disappointment, and I tried to beg off, but did not succeed. I couldn't even find out why I must waste this precious evening in a visit to a friend's house, when our own house offered so many and superior advantages. There was a mystery somewhere, but I was not able to get to the bottom of it. So we tramped across in the snow, and I found the Warner drawing-room crowded with seated people. There was a vacancy in the front row, for me, in front of a curtain. At once the curtain was drawn, and before me, properly costumed, was the little maid, Margaret Warner, clothed in Tom Canty's rags, and beyond an intercepting railing was Susie Clemens, arrayed in the silks and satins of the prince. Then followed with good action and spirit the rest of that first meeting between the prince and the pauper. It was a charming surprise, and to me a moving one. Other episodes of the tale followed, and I have seldom in my life enjoyed an evening so much as I enjoyed that one. This lovely surprise was my wife's work. She had patched the scenes together from the book, and had trained the six or eight young actors in their parts, and had also designed and furnished the costumes. Afterward I added a part 
for myself, Miles Hendon, also a part for Katie and a part for George. I think I have not mentioned George before. He was a colored man, the children's darling, and a remarkable person. He had been a member of the family a number of years at that time. He had been born a slave in Maryland, was set free by the proclamation when he was just entering young manhood. He was body-servant to General Devons all through the war, and then had come north, and for eight or ten years had been earning his living by odd jobs. He came out to our house once, an entire stranger, to clean some windows, and remained eighteen years. Mrs. Clemens could always tell enough about a servant by the look of him, more, in fact, than she or anybody else could tell about him by his recommendations. We played The Prince and the Pauper a number of times in our house to seated audiences of eighty-four persons, which was the limit of our space, and we got great entertainment out of it. As we played the piece, it had several superiorities over the play as presented on the public stage in England and America, for we always had both the prince and the pauper on deck, whereas these parts were always doubled on the public stage, an economical but unwise departure from the book, because it necessitated the excision of the strongest and most telling of the episodes. We made a stirring and handsome thing out of the coronation scene. This could not be accomplished otherwise than by having both the prince and the pauper present at the same time. Clara was the little Lady Jane Grey, and she performed the part with electrifying spirit. Twitchell's little cub, now a grave and reverend clergyman, was a page. He was so small that people on the back seats could not see him without an opera-glass, but he held up Lady Jane's train very well. Jean was only something past three years old, therefore was too young to have a part, but she produced the whole piece every day independently and played all the parts herself. For a one-actor piece it was not bad. In fact, it was very good, very entertaining, for she was in very deep earnest, and besides she used an English which none but herself could handle with effect. Our children and the neighbor's children played well, easily, comfortably, naturally, and with high spirit. How was it that they were able to do this? It was because they had been in training all the time from their infancy. They grew up in our house, so to speak, playing charades. We never made any preparation. We selected a word whispered the part of it to the little actors. Then we retired to the hall, where all sorts of costumery had been laid out ready for the evening. We dressed the parts in three minutes, and each detachment marched into the library 
and performed its syllable, then retired, leaving the fathers and mothers to guess that syllable if they could. Sometimes they could. Will Gillette, now world-famous actor and dramatist, learned a part of his trade by acting in our charades. Those little chaps, Susie and Clara, invented charades themselves in their earliest years, and played them for the entertainment of their mother and me. They had one high merit, none but a high-grade intellect could guess them. Obscurity is a great thing in a charade. These babies invented one once which was a masterpiece in this regard. They came in and played the first syllable, which was a conversation in which the word red occurred with suggestive frequency. Then they retired, came again, continuing an angry dispute which they had begun outside, and in which several words like just, fair, unfair, unjust, and so on, kept occurring. But we noticed that the word just was in the majority. So we set that down along with the word red, and discussed the probabilities while the children went out to recostume themselves. We had thus red, just. They soon appeared and began to do a very fashionable morning call in which the one made many inquiries of the other concerning some lady whose name was persistently suppressed and who was always referred to as her, even when the grammar did not permit of that form of the pronoun. The children retired. We took an account of stock, and so far as we could see we had three syllables, red, just, her. But that was all. The combination did not seem to throw any real glare on the future completed word. The children arrived again, and stooped down and began to chat and quarrel and carry on and fumble and fuss at the register, read just her. With the exception of myself, this family was never strong on spelling. In the Prince and the Pauper days, and earlier and later, especially later, Susie and her nearest neighbor, Margaret Warner, often devised tragedies and played them in the schoolroom with little Jean's help with closed doors, no admission to anybody. The chief characters were always a couple of queens, with a quarrel in stock, historical when possible, but a quarrel anyway, even if it had to be a work of the imagination. Jean always had one function, only one. She sat at a little table about a foot high, and drafted death warrants for these queens to sign. In the course of time they completely wore out Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots, also all of Mrs. Clemens' gowns that they could get hold of, for nothing charmed these monarchs like having four or five feet of gown dragging on the floor behind. Mrs. Clemens and I 
spied upon them more than once, which was treacherous conduct, but I don't think we very seriously minded that. It was grand to see the queens stride back and forth and reproach each other in three or four-syllable words, dripping with blood, and it was pretty to see how tranquil Jean was through it all. Familiarity with daily death and carnage had hardened her to crime and suffering in all their forms, and they were no longer able to hasten her pulse by a beat. Sometimes, when there was a long interval between death warrants, she even leaned her head on her table and went to sleep. It was, then, a curious spectacle of innocent repose and crimson and volcanic tragedy. End of section 8, New York, Tuesday, February 6, 1906.